Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you about our Strategic Financial Leadership Peer Groups. SFL peer groups connect you with industry leaders in a supportive peer group setting. In the SFL peer groups, you will effectively tap into collective intelligence, a multitude of perspectives, exclusive research and insights, an accountability structure, and hands-on coaching and support. These groups are either by career interests and goals, skill level and experience, characteristics and value, and geography. With bi-monthly virtual meetings, an annual leadership summit, quarterly mentorship sessions, and optional webinars, you will be able to develop meaningful relationships with other industry professionals. To learn more, go to sflhub.io, or you can click on the link in the episode description. That great individual who's that, I like to call him that, that time teller. And what I mean by that is, you know, most, you know, CEOs are, are time tellers, meaning Nobody else knows the time. Everybody has to come to that CEO to tell them the time. And as much as they might complain about it and that, you know, the fact that, you know, they have to solve all the problems, they're always putting out fires. The reality is they like that. They like the fact that they have all the answers, they have all the solutions, and that they're always in need. But the reality is, is as a great uh, business leader does not want to be a time teller. You want to be, as Jim Collins calls it, a clock builder. Um, you want to build other leaders who are capable of telling the time. From Cultivar, it's the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a show about CFOs, entrepreneurs, and top business executives, and their inspiring stories from inside the world of corporate strategy and finance. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Cultivar, and on today's show, I'll be talking with Don Wenner about scaling high growth high-profit entrepreneurial companies. As I've worked with companies across organizations, both big and small, I've realized this one thing. Oftentimes, one of the biggest barriers to a business getting to the next level of success is the mindset of the leader. Instead of focusing on leading the company strategically, struggling leaders get caught in day-to-day operations of the business. This creates a bottleneck on growth. To build a truly elite organization, leaders need to adopt a strategic mindset while relying on a systematic approach to growth and profitability. That's why I'm looking forward to my conversation with today's guest, Don Wenner, who is the author of his newest book, Building an Elite Organization. All right, Don, welcome to Strategic Financial Leadership. How are you doing today? I'm doing awesome. Thanks for having me here today. Yeah, you betcha. Uh, Let's start off with this. Um, I'm always interested in, in people's upbringing. 
And the same thing is true with yours. So when you think back on your childhood, was there like a specific experience or a period of time that fueled your passion for business? Like, did you know you're going to go into business or were you just like living life as a kid, just oblivious of what the future would look like? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. You know, I'm a, a father of two young, young boys today. And I think back to kind of what, what motivated me and where did, you know, kind of my, uh, you know, drive and passion and, and term we like to use a lot grit come from, uh, you know, I think as, as a, as a, as a parent, if I could figure out exactly what the, the key to, to what instills, you know, kind of grit and, and passion, I probably wrote a, would have wrote a different topic book on, on parenting than what I, what I chose, but, <laughs> uh, you know, but, but for me, uh, you know, I, I grew up, uh, like, you know, many of us, and I think that the kind word we all use is, you know, lower middle class and, you know, I grew up in a in a household. My parents had me at, at, as high school students, so they were young and and frankly poor. And uh, when I was five years old, and I was in kindergarten, my father started. My parents were divorced. My father started packing those little brown, black, you know, Hostess donuts. Um, those little uh, six packs, uh, cartons of Hostess donuts. Those little round circular donuts you might remember. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he started packing those in my lunch and I started selling those donuts to my classmates for 50 cents a piece. So I was making $3 a pack of donuts. And, you know, this was 30 years ago. So that was, that was pretty good uh, earnings with a $0 cost for me of those, those donuts. And that went on for a, for a few weeks and before the school found out and, and uh, my, my donut supply stopped. But you know, my father actually, I didn't remember that story. My father told it at my wedding, said that's when he knew I was an entrepreneur. And those types of kind of entrepreneurial stories existed through my through my childhood and ran you know multiple businesses through uh, school age and um, I was pretty set I was going into business and I was going to be uh, in charge and I thought for sure it was going to be as a financial planner or financial advisor in the eighth grade a gentleman came into career day and uh, he showed a chart that showed financial advisors made more money than doctors, lawyers, accountants, you know, all the jobs your parents want you to become. And with, you know, already with an entrepreneurial spirit and, and a strong skill in, in math, I was like, that's, you know, that's the perfect job for me. And I was set on it all through school that that's what I was going to do. I, I never questioned it uh, into, into college that that's exactly what I was going to do. And like many, you know, plans kind of deviate and I, and I kind of, ended up in real estate while I was still in college and things kind of took off from there. But I was sad I was going into business and I was going to be entrepreneurial from a, from a very, very young age. Yeah. And, and in fact, like you started selling alarm systems, right? That's, that's kind of I did, early yeah. on jobs. And it seemed like it really kickstarted you at a young age. Talk a little bit about that experience selling alarms and, and what did that teach you about business and just like selling product to yeah, it was it was a, it was a cool experience. So you know, while I was uh, going to college, I went to Drexel University uh, studying finance. I was working at some some great companies in the accounting and finance world, like BlackRock and McGladrey in Poland. But you know, I was still waiting tables on weekends to pay my way through through college. And um, a gentleman kept asking me to come work for him, and he t- just kept telling me he was in the security business. Didn't really know what that meant. Finally, one day I went and met with him. It turned out he ran a ADT security dealership. I still didn't really know what that all that meant. Uh, you know, I was, I was uh, 19 years old, and he convinced me that if I came to work for him selling alarm systems, I would make two thousand dollars a week. And at 19 years old, that sounded really good. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, yeah, it's a lot of money, right? Um, so I said, well, you know, he was so confident about it. So I said, well, I'm going to give it a try. For some reason, I believed him. I didn't know what the job really would entail, and he he gave me the expectation that I should make two thousand dollars a week, and explained to me 
you know, the basics essentially of, you know, door to door sales. So not knowing any differently, I started, you know, pounding the pavement, uh, literally knocking on residential doors. I sold an alarm system, one in every 51 doors. And that uh, first paycheck was $5,280. So I made more than two grand a week. And that turned out to be one of my worst paychecks. You know, funny, funny kind of side story. And I think this is, you know, how, how a lot of things go is that was, you know, the expectation was set to me that, that I should make $2,000 a week. And so coming in thinking that's what was normal and that's what I should make, I, I that was the bar to achieve. And so I, you know, achieved it. And um, later I found out uh, years later uh, that Nathan had never had the gentleman who, who owned the company had never had somebody make a thousand dollars a week, <laughs> let alone $2,000 a week. But because he gave me that expectation, you know, I, I, I achieved it and, and quickly then he happened to also be a real estate agent at Keller Williams Real Estate and uh, he convinced me to get my real estate license and told me if I could sell alarm systems knocking on doors, I could sell real estate and so I quickly got into real estate. I was still in college and kind of my real estate career took off really, really fast from there. Um, but it was, uh, it, was a, it was a really cool kind of path to end up in real estate and kind of grow into what we, we do today. And you started selling homes and you had this bold marketing statement where you essentially said, hey, I'll sell your home in 68 days or I'll buy it. So how did you come up with this message and why did you believe that you would be successful by following this mantra? Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. So I was took my classes to get my real estate license. I was still in college going, going full time. And so I kind of uh, literally uh, barely slept for you know two or three weeks and took my classes online to get my real estate license. And literally the, the weekend, I uh, right before I was sitting for my exam, I saw a friend of mine told me about this conference, this marketing conference in Scottsdale, Arizona. I was living where I, uh, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania and, and convinced me to fly out for this marketing conference that weekend. And at this marketing conference, it was essentially a Dan Kennedy conference for anybody who knows, you know, Dan Kennedy, kind of the, the authority on direct response marketing and kind of learn that concept. And, you know, that's when I, you know, developed the year home sold, you know, 68 days guaranteed or I'll buy it uh, message. Why 68 days? So at the time, and this was October, 2006, at the time, the average home took 34 days to sell. So I literally just doubled it. Um, and said, you know, that's what I would guarantee to, to sell a home in. Little did I know, or anybody knew at the time, that October 2006 uh, turned out to be the peak of the real estate market, uh, meaning home sales started slowing down, homes started taking longer to sell, prices started, you know, declining in, you know, and later in 2007, and uh, and the market started going through, you know, what we all know now as the you know Great Recession. But so, considering the market was turning. It was a great time to have a, a guarantee, great time to kind of shift that risk and stress from the homeowner uh, onto myself or, or our company. But yeah, so kind of it was a bit of a random number per se, but it kind of 
sounded good to me and it was kind of twice the market time frame and felt comfortable I could get it done in that time frame and kept that time frame for you know 10 years and then you know 10 years later we cut it to 34 days actually but and that's that's kind of our guarantee uh, now in that that business line uh, but yeah just uh you just hit and we pushed that marketing message hard through radio and television and still at the time print marketing worked and you know newspapers and we were on the beginning days of marketing on Craigslist and digital marketing and just kind of pushed that message really hard at a, at a good time and led to a lot of motivated home sellers contacting us. And then we basically would either list their home and guarantee to sell it, or if they couldn't even wait going through the market and, and listing and, and all those challenges, we would just step in and buy their home. And that's how our investment business was born. And we started flipping homes and then that led to you know kind of all the things that we, we do today. But it, yeah, it came largely off kind of a good marketing uh, message and, and an aggressive kind of uh, active approach to, to getting the word out. So, I mean, it seems like it was a natural progression to get into, you know, buying these homes and flipping them, but talk more about that. I mean, because I'm sure you didn't have experience flipping homes and probably not a lot of construction experience. So what allowed you to step outside your comfort zone and to achieve success in this new area? You know, I'd say the first thing and this, you know, we're in, uh, you know, we're in a lot of businesses, business lines today, all that revolves around the world of, of housing. Um, and I'd say the the first kind of overall answer is I've always had a I guess an internal confidence that you know if somebody else could do something you know there's no reason I or we can't do it. And the great thing about the world of real estate and construction and is is there's lots and lots and lots of people who who do it. It's not you know it's not a unique small niche business at the end of the day. And and so I was always confident we could figure it out. I could find the right people. Um, I was always willing to listen and learn. And there's lots of people who've who've done these businesses successfully. But how I, you know, how I actually got into it um, was, you know, I came from a finance background through school. And, and so when I got into real estate, it was, you know, immediately went to helping investors, you know, find properties was a big focus of how I was going to grow our real estate brokerage. So I started helping real estate investors find homes to flip. So I wasn't an expert on flipping homes, wasn't an expert on construction, but, you know, I was sourcing a lot of motivated home sellers who wanted to sell their homes, you know, for cash or to investors. And so I was sourcing properties to real estate investors. And this was in early 2007. And I sourced a property in, in a little town called Catasauqua, Pennsylvania for an investor I was working with named Jack to, to buy. And day of closing, I was I was there, I was the realtor and I was uh, representing Jack and I'm sitting across from this little old lady named Eleanor. And Eleanor was the seller of the property and Eleanor had owned this home for you know 30 years, 40 years. She was already moved out. She was living in an assisted living facility and I'm sitting across from her making small talk with her. She was 82 or 83 years old. And my client, you know, it's 10 minutes past the time he was supposed to be there. I call him. He doesn't pick up. I continue waiting. Call him again. Doesn't pick up. Call him again. Finally, he picks up. And I say, hey, Jack, where are you? We're at the closing table. You know, we're waiting for you. He says, sorry, Don, I couldn't get my loan, my, my hard money loan. I can't buy the house. Click. Hung up on me. Hmm. And so this was on a Friday afternoon. And, and so I tell Eleanor that my buyer, unfortunately, can't buy, isn't going to be able to buy her house. And she breaks into tears. She's crying hysterically. She tells me she's going to get kicked out of the uh, assisted living facility. if She doesn't have the funds today. Today's her deadline. I mean, she is distraught. And um, I was sitting at a, at a real estate office, a closing table, and literally across the street was my bank, which at the time was PNC Bank. Um, a branch was, was literally across the street. And kind of right then and there, I decided I would buy her house. So I was you know, 20 years old and I literally 
you know, no exaggeration, literally ran across the street to the bank and I took out a cashier's check for $71,000 to buy her house, which was pretty much the money I had saved up from selling a lot of alarm systems. Right. And, uh, and I bought this uh, lady's home and I called up a, a guy I had met who had renovated some homes for another investor and asked him if he would, you know, renovate this home for me. And uh, he agreed to do so. And so put, you know, 20 grand into it and turned around and flipped it and, and made a profit and, you know, realized it you know, wasn't all that, that difficult. And, you know, and, and so started, started doing a few at a time and it steadily grew to the point where we couldn't find enough good contractors. And so I had one really good contractor. So I hired, convinced him to come and start my construction company and build that, you know, area of expertise and, and service our, our investment business. Yeah. And that's interesting. And the question that I have about real estate, that's always on my mind because, you know, I'm not an expert in the real estate space. I'm more focused on the the business side, like helping companies and, and turning them around, uh, yep. similar to what you're doing with real estate. But there's the old story on Wall Street where back in the 1920s, right before the Great Depression and the giant stock market crash, that there was like a shoe shine boy who was giving somebody like stock advice. <laughs> and, you know, as soon as th- that, that person realized that their shoe shine boy was telling them what to do in the market, that it was time to get out. And, and that's like the, the fable or the myth or whatever you want to call it of, of when the stock market started to crash, you know, people started to panic. Now, whether that's true or not, it, it doesn't matter. But the point is, is like in real estate, it seems like everybody and their neighbor and their friend and their dog is getting into real estate and there's flipping and buying this. And I, I mean, I talk to people who probably have no business getting into that space, but you know, now they're buying homes and they're, they're flipping them and they have no expertise whatsoever. Do you think that's a concern that so many people are getting into real estate and you know the market's just going crazy and there's a shortage of supply. So valuations are going through the roof. And I mean, the market's just crazy right now. Talk to me a little it bit is, about that. It is, yeah, it is absolutely crazy. I think we, we're going to end up looking back on 2021 and it's going to turn out to be the greatest growth in home prices ever in a single year. It is absolutely crazy for sure. So um, what I'd say, and I think that's a great, great fable and I've never heard that in that exact way, but you know, I, I know when I uh, first entered real estate in 2006, it was a similar case in real estate where, you know, every taxi driver, bartender, et cetera, was a real estate investor. And at the time, you know, it was the, it was the days of the subprime market. And, you know, it was very easy for investors to buy investment properties or a second home with 100% financing. I know when I bought my first home, I was uh, 19 years old. I bought a home for $340,000 and I uh, went to the lender and I asked him what I need to do to qualify. And he said, you just need to sign this piece of paper here about how much money you think you, you make this next year. He said, I'd recommend that you put at least a hundred thousand. Unfortunately, I was making, you know, a good amount more than that anyway. And that's all I had to do. And, you know, I was approved and uh, could have received hundred percent financing if I had wanted. And that was, you know, very commonplace in, in those days and not just again for primary homes, but for investment property. So lots of, you know, again, bartenders and taxi drivers as, you know, kind of prototypical examples were buying, you know, two unit and four unit properties and flipping homes and, and so forth. And, you know, I think the, the good news this time around is, is financing is nowhere near as, as loose and as easy to obtain as it was back then. And you know, our, our biggest and, and core business today is providing capital as well as you know, education and support to real estate operators who are scaling business. We're lending to guys who are flipping homes, who are building single family portfolios, multifamily portfolios, home builders. And there are certainly you know, many attempting to flip a home who, who probably, have, as you said, have no business doing so. 
but it's dramatically less than it was, you know, back in the, in the last cycle, um, largely because you need uh, a good amount of cash to buy today with where financing is. And that keeps most people uh, out. But, you know, the, the, the majority of people who flip a home still to this day never flip a second home um, because they end up losing money. And so, you know, we lend only to experience, you know, real estate investors for that, that reason, as, as many cases, those first uh, deal or two don't go well, and most didn't have a business doing it, or even if they did, you know, they, they don't have the fortitude to, to continue and, and learn from those mistakes. So it's definitely, definitely an interesting, uh, interesting business that, uh, that of home flipping and investing, especially in single family homes. It, it certainly, I mean, any one of us could look like a genius if we had just simply bought more homes, real estate, you know, two years ago, three years ago, sure. four years ago, and did nothing right. You didn't have to be good at buying. You didn't have to buy at a great price. You didn't have to do much other than just having bought and, and waited because the market's, you know, gone up so much and, you know, all tides rise kind of effect. But the good side, I think when you get people who are inexperienced, I think the bigger challenge I see in today's market is in, in bigger assets, actually. So you see investors today who go and syndicate money off of, you know, a podcast or off of a, you know, uh, a blog and they get, you know, friends and family, you know, per se money and they go out and buy a hundred unit apartment building or 200 unit apartment building and raise two, three, four million dollars equity, you know, managing a 200 unit apartment building. It's not easy, you know, managing residential, you know, workforce housing is not easy. And I, I think that, that it's very, very challenging. Many learn that operating and generating positive cash flow, hitting solid 90 plus percent occupancy is, is not an easy thing to do. I think the positive of that, though, for somebody like you know myself and for other investors who know what they're doing, is that creates you know distressed opportunities and that creates buying opportunities, especially when there's there's volatility. Unfortunate to those who chose to invest in an inexperienced manager, but you know does does create you know opportunities you know when things do get uh, tighter and more challenging. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Well, let's go back to, you know, your career. Your career's taken off. You're experiencing success. And my understanding is that as you're experiencing this rapid growth, you stopped and you started to question scalability. Do you believe that rapidly growing companies do this or do they just move on with this so-called like peachy outlook and just continue operations as is? Yeah, that's a great great question. So, so what I'd say is, you know, I see a lot of, you know, uh incredible you know, entrepreneurs or incredible, you know, I'll call producers and in, in all businesses, certainly in real estate, but in all businesses, you could talk, you know, a CPA, you could talk, you know, an attorney, um, lots of different professionals who, who, you know, who are really great at their craft, really great at what they do. They're a great producer, work really hard, outwork everybody else. You know, they can get to a point where they can grow a business depending on the business they're in and their course abilities to a million dollars a year revenue or three million or five or 10 or maybe 20 million dollars. And then what happens is that great individual who's that I like to call them that that time teller. And what I mean by that is, you know, most, you know, CEOs are, are time tellers, meaning nobody else knows the time. Everybody has to come to that CEO to tell them the time. And as much as they might complain about it and that, you know, the fact that, you know, they have to solve all the problems, they're always putting out fires. The reality is they like that. They like the fact that they have all the answers, they have all the solutions and that they're always in need. But the reality is, is as a great uh, business leader does not want to be a time teller. You want to be, as Jim Collins calls it, a clock builder. Um, you want to build other leaders who are capable of telling the time. And that transition of being a great individual producer, maybe with a bunch of doers, a bunch of kind of minions supporting you, 
hits hits a cap uh, as we're all limited by time and you have to be able to build you know great people and leadership you have to be able to build process and systems you have to develop clear goals and strategy that's not just in your head that you're you're driving forward and doing that building and scaling a, a organization and doing so profitably you know is very hard and, and and my belief is the vast vast majority of of small businesses never transition from a uh, even the ones who have a, of a certain level of success to to really building an enduring, you know, great organization. And to your point, that's because they often uh, never stop and, and commit to putting the structure and discipline uh, into their business to allow them to move from being, you know, the man, the woman who's solving every problem to, to really building a great organization and investing in, in people and systems and, and structure. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, because it's so easy, like you said, to go down the path of either you're just on this super accelerated growth path and you don't take the time to stop and get the structure in place and get the strategy right. Or like you said, you're you're a solo entrepreneur, business owner, and you just you have this do-it-yourself type attitude. I mean, it's very difficult to scale like that, right? Like you said, you're going to hit these caps here. And you talk a lot about this in your book, and I want to get into that in just a second here. But before I do so, let me ask you this. like, As you look back, on your accomplishments, do you recall like any pitfalls that in the long run ended up benefiting you? Because, you know, I think back on my past and there's times where I ran into these obstacles or these roadblocks and I'm like, oh my gosh, why is this happening? I feel like I failed in this area or in that area. And now when I look back on those moments, I can start connecting the dots and, and I, I'm lucky and uh, grateful for those experiences because it propelled me in a different direction. So how have these experiences uh, shaped your journey? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and and you know, it, it reminds me of uh, you know a book that I that I really uh, enjoy. One of my favorite books, one that we just read as an organization uh, not too long ago, called "The Obstacle Is the Way" by Ryan Holiday. And the book is about you know facing obstacles, challenges, roadblocks. That that's that's a good thing. That's that's a sign you're you're moving in the right direction. The ability to work through those those obstacles, not expecting that things are always going to be easy, and looking for the easy route is how you build you know success in life life and, and success in a business. So I'd say, you know, as we've moved into new business lines and expanded and, and changed our, our business model has often come from hitting, hitting challenges and roadblocks. For example, you know, we started our business, you know, really focused around scattered housing. And what I mean by that is, you know, we owned a lot of single family homes, a lot of multifamily buildings that don't have, you know, management, you know, local to the property, a lot of different asset classes. We bought all different types of commercial assets too. And it was very difficult to manage, you know, all these scattered properties. And it was very challenging to generate, you know, the, the kind of cash flow we, we were targeting and manage the turnover and, and maintenance and, and so forth. And that's what led us down the path of figuring out, we knew we wanted to focus on impacting the affordable workforce housing crisis and figuring out, you know, how do we do that in scale? And that's what led us down the path of, of our two core investment strategies today, which are one, investing equity in, in communities and owning uh, residential communities, both single family and multifamily residential communities where we can really control the experience and, and have on-site and more structured, uh, you know, management resources. And then also led us down the path of, investing capital as a, as a lender and an equity partner with other operators and scaling with operators who have expertise in certain 
uh, strategies or geographies and playing capital through those those relationships. So I go through a lot of those examples of those pivots that came from, you know, running into challenges or, you know, uh, making, you know, mistakes along the way in our, our growth. And I'd say the biggest thing that even though we've grown quickly by most people's standards, you know, we've grown 60 plus percent a year over 15 years every year. I say the biggest thing I look back and say, what could have I done you know, better or different if I were to redo it again? See, the only thing I would have done, you know, differently is, is even though we're doing these things reasonably aggressively is I would have, you know, hired and developed leaders even faster. And I would have, you know, invested even earlier in, in building, you know, discipline and structure, you know, in our organization and done it even sooner. Um, but I've never gone down a path of, you know, making a hire, making an investment in our business that I didn't go and say, man, why didn't we do this sooner? Why did we wait so long as we look back? But, you know, everything, everything happens for a reason. And uh, it's been, it's been a heck of a, heck of a journey. Okay. Cause some of these listeners may be thinking, well, that's great, Don, but my life hasn't turned out that way. I mean, it seems like, you know, you're, you're telling the story of, Hey, I'm selling donuts on the bus or selling donuts at school <laughs> and making a, a profit there. And then, then I get into selling security systems and bam, you know, I'm, I'm very successful and I'm killing it, you know, as far as commissions go. And then you, you get into real estate and, you know, once again, you're, you're on this, you know, high growth trajectory. Did you ever reach a point where you're like, Oh my gosh, I screwed up majorly and I'm about to fail or has it all just been forward going wind beneath your sails and nothing but success? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So, I mean, I, I'd, I'd say, you know, we've overall been, you know, very blessed that we haven't had, you know, overall major, major setbacks and we haven't had a situation where we've been, we don't have the stories where, you know, we nearly went bankrupt and, you know, we almost missed payroll or, you know, we're on the verge of going out of business. We, we, we're very blessed and, and fortunate that we don't have any of those situations as an overall organization. You know, we're, we're a diverse organization of a number of different business units today, about 15 different business units. But that doesn't mean every business unit I've ever launched has been a success. You know, we've gone down the path of, you know, I believe in the kind of concept of, you know, firing uh, bullets, then cannonballs and, you know, testing different things. And, you know, we built a, a pretty large a technology company that ended up not working out. It, it ended up selling the interest to, to my partner. It wasn't, you know, any major loss, but invested a lot of time and energy going down this path that did not turn out. You know, we, we went down the path not too long ago of scaling a home building company and had some success, but overall ended up not fitting well with our existing set of businesses. And we ended up again, kind of exiting that business and moving on and looking back certainly wasn't worth the time and energy we put into it. Um, didn't, you know, lose millions of dollars or anything, but wasn't worth the, the organizational time and effort that, that went into that, that business and the distraction it took from, from other things. And I think that's the biggest challenge as we've grown is sometimes it's easy as you're having a lot of success to fall into the mindset of hubris and thinking, you know, everything we touch is going to be successful and, and saying yes to lots of good ideas instead of saying yes only to a few great ideas. And so we've certainly had those situations. We've made you know mistakes in hiring key executives. In fact, just last week, I had to let go an executive. And, and after all these years, 15 years, the number one place I spend the largest amount of my time day in and day out is on hiring. If you were to ask me a week ago, I would have told you two weeks ago that, you know, we're, we're pretty darn good now at, at hiring and attracting talent and screening at talent, and putting the right people in place. And I'd still tell you we are, but, but I just made after all these years and all these hires, I just made maybe the worst hire I've ever made for a leader in my construction company 
who turned out to, to be an absolute bust and invested a lot of time recruiting him from another company, a lot of time trying to get him up to speed, a lot of investment of representing him as a leader to, to the team to then have him you know burn out in the matter of weeks and be an absolute utter failure, uh, I'll say on our end, um, in, the, in the higher on my end. Um, so we've certainly had lots of mistakes. And on the personal side, you know, I have an American Idol story, just like uh, I'm sure you just even everybody else of life challenges and tribulations and, and difficulties. But, you know, as you, you kind of brought up earlier, you know, failure is only, you know, if you look at it their way and you look at the lessons you can learn from it only builds, you know, your character, your resilience, your ability to improve and grow. So um, we just don't get too stressed and, and put a lot too much energy around the times that we haven't uh, succeeded and instead learn from it. And by putting enough discipline in place that we're never, we haven't ever gone all in, in, in one thing or one, one idea or one system or one move that has put our whole organization at jeopardy. Um, we've always uh, had discipline. We've always had diversification of income and revenue that's given us, you know, flexibility and some strength. You know, we've been believing, I know a lot of people listening here are in the world of finance. And so we, we believe heavily and as, as real estate operators and developers, uh, even more critical, we believe heavily in the, the importance of cash and even more on the importance of cash flow. Mm-hmm. And the book I wrote here recently mentioned is called Building an Elite Organization. And the subtitle is The Blueprint to scaling a high growth, high profit business. And as much as we've grown by, you know, uh, quickly over the years, our profit margin, not just our profit, but our margin has grown every single year, not necessarily every month or every quarter, but every year our margin has, has grown. So we've been very focused on, on cash flow. And that's been, you know, especially when things like COVID pop up and, you know, it's been, you know, really what's given us the, the fortitude to kind of deal with the challenges that, that have arose. And let's talk about that. Let's switch gears and, and move over to your book because you know your book, Building an Elite Organization, is recently released. And congratulations on that, by the way, because I, I hear you. it's doing well and it's hitting some bestseller list. What was the, the purpose behind writing this book? I mean, here you are, you're a busy professional. You have all these things that you're, you're trying to you know, juggle in life and writing a book. You know, I know because I've been down that <laughs> done a few times, process. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of work. So what were you trying to get out of the book? And talk to me about the, the purpose behind this endeavor. So I'm going to have to take just a super quick step step back, a reasonably quick step back here to, to to answer that question. So one of the things I didn't really you know get a chance to, to kind of mention already is you know we're we're very much a purpose driven organization, and I'm you know very purpose driven personally. And you know we've we've really spent a lot of time in the last number of years really trying to determine you know where and how we want to make an impact. We've you know decided on four areas of impact that we can use the platform of, of our organization and you know my platform of, of influence um, with the relationships you know I've built over over my career and in in those uh, four areas of impact the first is the workforce affordable uh, housing crisis you know our, our kind of focus is on investing in housing that is affordable and will remain affordable for the local workforce at the end of the day that's that's core to everything we do in our organization that's kind of the most obvious area of impact that, that we do as an organization today the second big area of impact is on the jobs crisis COVID has dramatically accelerated this crisis. And it's a crisis that somewhere between 30 to 50% of American jobs are at jeopardy of automation in the next 10 to 20 years alone. Um, wow. And, and I'm going to come back to that because that's really what the reason I wrote the book. But I'll quickly mention the other two crises. The third is the generational wealth crisis and the fact that most first generation wealth creators will have their wealth lost by the second or third generation. 
And so that's an area of focus is we have 1400 families invested with us who are most cases, first generation wealth creators. We want to help them live and leave a legacy. And, and the fourth crisis we're focused on, which really all of these tie uh, into is the happiness crisis. And what I mean by that is, is over 40% of Americans right now are suffering from some form of mental illness. And the, the number one being depression. And again, COVID, another area where COVID has dramatically accelerated, you know, uh, the percentage of, of people, the number of people uh, dealing with depression. And I believe that most of us for, you know, right or wrong, you know, you know all, most, most humans are our natural number one kind of human desire is that of importance and significant. You know, Dale Carnegie and his wonderful book, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People, you know, talks a lot about this. And, and most people's feeling of importance and significance is derived from their career, from their work. Again, right or wrong, that's just, just the reality where most people derive that, that feeling of importance. And I believe as, as business leaders, it is our job to help our team members understand their role and understand how it's part of something bigger than themselves, understand the impact that they're, they're a part of. And I believe it's our job as, as leaders to help our team members do which a whole chapter of the book is on, is help our team members live, or our employees, we call them team members, live fully. And we call it the eight Fs of life, which are faith, family, friends, finance, fitness, fun, fulfillment, and freedom. And we want to help our, all of our employees improve and grow and be fulfilled in all of those areas of life at the same time and invest in them as, as people and understand that they're our greatest asset and help them feel important and significant and carry that feeling to their home life and their faith life and, and, and so forth. And I believe that's our job. And, and so we, we wrote this book, I wrote this book and we've promoted and, and, and are, you know, getting the word out on this book as an organization to number one, make an impact on this jobs crisis. And this book is about you know, scaling a high profit, high growth business. And I believe the only way you create jobs is through small businesses. I don't believe the government can create jobs. Uh, despite what the politicians tell us, uh, I believe the way we create jobs and the way we're going to create new jobs, because many of these jobs that are being, you know, uh, automated, they're not coming back. We need to create new jobs, which are going to come from entrepreneurial small businesses. So, but it's very, very, very hard to grow and scale a business. As we talked a little bit about earlier, many great, uh, incredible people get stuck and don't have the systems and the structure and the discipline in place. And we think about it that every business has four quadrants, which are strategy, people, operations, and acceleration. Acceleration is sales and marketing integrated. And those four quadrants have to grow together a part of one cohesive plan in order to not only grow, but to consistently grow profitably. So that's what we're focused on helping companies do, providing the blueprint to be able to do that and scale quickly and consistently while focusing on investing in their people, um, which are their greatest assets. We know more and more small businesses doing this, thinking different, really investing heavily in the culture and the people they, they build. We can make a big impact as well on this happiness crisis. So that's what led us down the path of writing the book. The, the other reason I wrote the book is this is the guide now for all of our employees to read when they get started with us. And this system, this elite execution system, which is what the book is about, we also teach 
to the, the real estate operators who we're lending to, who are investing equity with, we actually help them and actually require them to implement the lead execution system because we know that that's going to help them build a more disciplined business. It's going to remove our risk in investing capital from with them. And it's going to help them scale and allow us to scale and help with them. Those are the reasons we wrote the book and you know, very passionate about impacting this drastically growing jobs crisis that, that we face here in America and around the world, certainly. Pull back the curtain a little bit and give us a sneak peek. What is this elite execution system that you're talking about? So the elite execution system is a is a full you know internal operating system to how you scale a, a high growth business. So so I said the four quadrant strategy, people, operations, and acceleration. So on the strategy side, it starts with a tool we have that we've developed called the compass, where we lay out the big picture of the why and the how and and the who of the business, you know, developing clear purpose and mission and a big audacious goal and core values and understanding, you know, what we do well and who, who our core client is and laying out, you know, long-term, you know, checkpoints to our business and then breaking it down to a three-year aim and a one-year bullseye and very specific goals to, to what we're going to accomplish this very year. And, and then into operations, uh, helping us figure out how do we, how do we manage in a growing organization, you know, communication, running meetings, prioritizing all the different opportunities. And we've built and developed tools to help us achieve our, our biggest, most important goals. You know, one of our core tools um, we call Rocks, allow uh, companies who, who execute on Rocks to accomplish more in 90 days than their competition accomplishes all year. We detail out heavily around you know, people and how to develop leadership, how to hire and attract the best talent for your organization and put them in a position to, to have ownership and, and accountability and to clearly know what they're responsible for and be able to drive you know, uh, consistent results. We focus heavily on the tools necessary to consistently grow sales, grow revenue, and how to make sure you're tying your sales and your marketing together along you know, with the support of operations um, to be able to consistently generate enough demand and an opportunity to scale your organization. So all the challenges of, of being in a fast growth environment, all the different competing interests and priorities, you know, I, I'm a huge reader and I know I've already, you know, referenced a, a number of books in this podcast here, but, you know, you, you read and you know, I, I've been reading, you know, two, three books and I largely listen to them, but for many years, every week, and, and you read one book about, and it tells you all you need to grow an incredibly successful business is leadership. And you read another book and it's all you need is, you know, is execution or all you need is great checklist or all you need to do is learn how to master content marketing or all you need is great strategy or, you know, there's all the, all you need is to learn how to hire A players in your business. And there's all these wonderful experts out there and all these wonderful books that tell you there's this one secret that if you could be great at it, your business will, will scale and be so profitable and take off. And the reality is that it's just simply not true. And as well as there's so many great thought leaders and, and they have awesome ideas, it's about being able to take all these different components and have them grow part of one plan. Because if I have the best operations in the world and I have the best technology and the best SOPs and the best systems, but I don't have any business, right? What, what good is that going to do me, right? Or if I have all the leads in the world and, and tons of people interested in my products or services, but I operationally can't handle it, what, what good is, is that going to do, right? Et cetera, et cetera. So it's being able to pull all those pieces together. And, and the elite execution system is a blueprint. It's a full system. There's nothing theoretical. It's 100% actionable on, on how to put the structure and discipline in a business to be able to consistently grow to whatever size and scope uh, that the uh, leadership team uh, desires. And why do you think organizations struggle so much with execution? 
Well, it's hard. <laughs> I'll start with it. It's, it's really hard. And, and I think we're in a, a culture today as much as ever of wanting, you know, the easy button, right? We, we want to click a button and it shows up at our house in 35 minutes and uh, it's awesome. And, and, and more and more of life is being able to be that easy and, and, and the friction is, is going away and, and a lot of things in day-to-day life that used to be very full of friction. Um, but the reality in, in scaling a high growth business is there's lots of friction. There's lots of challenges. It, it's, it's messy. It's difficult. It's it's hard, and most people today, uh, I believe, uh, struggle with grit. And I believe, you know, grit is what separates the most highly. I don't. I should rephrase. I don't believe. I know grit is what separates the most highly successful people in the world from everybody else. And great book on grit by Angela Duckworth. And you know, grit is passion plus perseverance towards long term goals. Another way to think about it I, I like is the formula of grit is. Talent times effort equals skill. Skill times effort equals result. So effort counts twice, but it's effort around the the pursuit of being great at your craft, um, about consistently pursuing a big goal um, and enjoying the path of achieving greatness. And most people today, even even the most entrepreneurial, you know, being being entrepreneurial is a cool in thing today for sure. But most people don't think, hey, it's fun in the beginning. It's exciting and thinking about big ideas. Now we're going to change the world and a strategy. That's all fun. Um, it's enjoyable. It's exciting. But then all of a sudden, once you, you kind of get things in motion, you start having clients and start doing business, all of a sudden it gets hard and you start having problems and issues and, and you start having to deal with you know, operations and project management and it's not as fun anymore. And, and people lose, lose excitement and they want to go chase another fun, exciting idea. And, and I can say with 100% confidence that after now having, you know, grown, you know, 15, 16 different businesses, as well as, you know, helped implement uh, our, our systems in many other businesses, is that all businesses are, are more alike than they are different. And the challenges that any business faces are very similar in all businesses and, and being able to understand and enjoy uh, that challenge of of scale, that challenge of fighting through the obstacles and dealing with the whirlwind and messiness of growth and the incremental improvement in growth, um, enjoying that uh, going through what we call the 20-mile march of our growth, putting the discipline in place to, to march forward 20 miles a day, every day, not just the beginning of the month, not just the end of the month, not just when we feel like it, not just when the weather is good outside, but every single day controlling and, and doing massive activity towards a, a, a big goal. Um, needs to become a, a part of the organizational's culture. And not a lot of companies kind of enjoy that. Most people don't become entrepreneurs and start a business because they want discipline, right? They, they think it's going to provide them freedom and, and flexibility and fun. And, and the reality is that discipline throughout your organization, discipline uh, personally is actually what gives you freedom and flexibility to, to, to think big and, and do exciting things. But you need structure and discipline in your business, which isn't a lot of fun putting in place. And, and if your business doesn't currently have that, it can be very challenging to, to, to shift and put it in place. But it's you know, well worth the, the effort and energy to do so. And, and, and you know, last comment, I think why a lot of companies don't put this in place is because there's not a clear system out there to follow. There's all these difference of opinions. There's not a, a kind of a clear roadmap to follow. Somebody can say, hey, here's how you do it. If you want to go from doing $5 million a year to $50 million a year, here's, here's the path. And I think more and more people, if they, they, somebody could chart that course for them, would be willing to do the work, um, but they don't know how to, how to go about following that, that roadmap. 
Well said. And it sounds like your book lays out a great roadmap. So for you listeners out there, check that out. But let me ask you this, Don. So going from alarm systems to real estate, to flipping, to lending, to where you are now, when you look back on your journey to this point, is there anything that you would have done differently? Or is there anything that sticks out to you as your aha moment? Yeah, I'd say the the biggest thing I I would have done, um, I don't know, I guess differently is not the right word, but done sooner is investing even faster and in, in, in deeper in, in relationships and, and key people. So I, like man, many of the time tellers that I referenced earlier, have you know often have turned to myself to will ourselves forward to achieve goals. First, first and foremost, turning to the Lord and secondary, turning to, to great people and, and investing in others. Sometimes it's easier just to do it yourself easier to continue to, to put more on your own own plate and, and simply will yourself forward to your goals. And, and I think in many cases, I, I did that, you know, too long um, in different areas where if I would have invested quicker, sooner into great people internally, as well as in great relationships, investing deep in, in phenomenal relationships with, you know, other organizations and relationships that, that could be a part of our, our growth and success even faster, kind of slowed down a little bit and invested in those developing relationships that could get us to where we want to go faster. You know, I think we would have achieved our success, you know, even uh, faster and and probably been even a little, little bit easier uh, getting there. Not that uh, easy is necessarily what you want to thrive for, but I think we would be even further along in our journey and be impacting even more people today than we are uh, at this point in time. But nothing I would, I would, wouldn't, wouldn't change the course. It's everything, everything happens for a reason. You know, it's been a heck of a, a fun uh, journey for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I can agree with you more. I mean, the relationship side of business is so important. And I didn't get that when I was younger. You know, I was just so into like grinding and just getting the work done. And people were kind of secondary, unfortunately, because it's like, oh, they're getting in my way of getting the work done. It wasn't until I was older that I realized it's the people first, it's the relationships first that matter the most. And that's contributed to my success more than anything, more than just getting the job done or producing quality work. It starts with the relationship and it starts with people. Really, really well said. Agreed. Okay. Last question. So how has COVID impacted operations for you? And do you have any advice for those who have experienced slowdowns or disruptions to their business? Yeah. So it's a great, great question. So I say, I guess the biggest advice I could say is put your business in pro-business states. Um, as much as, as possible, um, I think is a lesson we, we all learned. I'm very fortunate that almost zero uh, of, of our business, any of our businesses are in the state of New York or California. No, no offense to, to those of you in those states, but you know, some of those states such as New York, California have obviously been hit the hardest and have taken the strongest stance of, I want to say anti-business, but certainly not pro-business through, through this environment. In the beginning of, of COVID, Pennsylvania actually took as strong of a stance as, as any state and they ha- they actually held the construction shutdowns longer than any other state, believe it or not. And Pennsylvania is, is where my home state and where we still have our Northeast headquarters and that's our number one state uh, in terms of construction. And they also took one of the hardest stance against real estate sales and brokerage and didn't allow any showings, any tours for uh, longer than any other state, I believe, or at least was one of the last two or three. And so that's where our real estate brokerage is located. So uh, in Pennsylvania, it was really tough in the months of April, May, June of, of last year. We, we did some innovative and creative things, but we were largely forced to shut down. 
But uh, in states like Florida and the Carolinas and, you know, business continued nearly at normal in our businesses. I, I, I don't in any way diminish what, you know, restauranteurs and so forth went through. But for our businesses of, of real estate and construction, it, it went, you know, really well. And um, we invested, as you talked a moment ago about how important relationships are, we're very fortunate that we've invested heavily. We didn't learn it fast enough, but over the last, you know, handful or so years, we, we have really learned that lesson. So, you know, we have 1,400 families invested with us today. And, you know, we didn't have any investors or virtually any investors, you know, wanting to take their money back when everybody was afraid back in COVID. And actually more and more people invested more capital with us. All of our borrowers who we lend to made their payments every single month. We haven't had a single default, a single forbearance agreement because we built, you know, deep relationships with those operators. We certainly dealt with a crazy environment that nobody would have ever expected. The government coming and telling us you can't evict tenants if they don't pay. You can't force them to pay and you can't get rid of them. So we've certainly dealt with higher delinquency rates than we've ever dealt with before. But because the demand for workforce housing has never been higher, you know, we've seen record-breaking occupancies. We've seen rents continue to grow, which is good for us, not necessarily good for the economy because um, continuing to exacerbate this workforce housing affordability crisis. So, you know, our cash flow went up all through COVID. Um, so we were very blessed that we, we are in a good strategy that does well in, in difficult and recessionary times. And then I have to give a lot of credit to our frontline team members because over half of our organization works on site at communities and they continue to work and service residents and go into people's homes and lease apartments and so forth all through COVID. We've probably had a hundred plus team members have COVID and, you know, they work through it and didn't miss a beat. And, you know, technologies like Zoom and so forth have been instrumental. Unfortunately, we were already on these technologies and operating because we're all over the country pretty virtually. So it was a very natural adaption. So very, very fortunate people worked really hard. And I think the biggest thing, if I could go backwards in time, I would have done a little better through COVID. In the very beginning days, we, we jumped on communicating with our investors really well and doing twice a week kind of communication. And we jumped to two, three week huddles with our team members and trying to make sure we communicate, communicate. And we did that overall well, but I, I don't think I recognized how difficult COVID was on many families who, you know, I think of, you know, single parents or even uh, dual household families who are both were working through this environment while their kids were at home, whether they school age kids or kids who were going to daycare, preschool and having to become now full time, you know, teacher, full time, you know, taking care of their children while working, while dealing with the stress of, of the disconnection from family and loved ones and people having older parents going through challenges, just the amount of stress and the, the psychological effect that that has had on people. And um, I don't think I quite uh, grasped how difficult this is for has been for a lot of people who, who have had to fight through, especially, of course, those is always in the lower income uh, categories with less resources at their disposal. It's you know how how difficult it's been been for many, and we try to do a lot of things uh, to help help our team members, help our residents. But I don't think I quite realized how much psychologically it's it difficult it's been, and seeing and hearing the the heavy growth in depression and so forth through COVID. Um, I think the the psychological effects have been much greater than the physical effects of of COVID, and and. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, took us long, longer than I'd like for us to, to, to have fully realize that and, and be able to start taking aggressive action against it. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Well, Don, you know, it, it's been a pleasure talking with you and hearing your insights and hearing your story and your path so far. And congratulations on your book. You know, I, I think that's a great resource to get in the hands of leaders. And I, I think it could really help them, you know, define a process and a system 
to achieve repeatable and sustainable growth and profitability. So congratulations on that. Thanks for getting that out there to the market. I'm sure that'll be a, a huge benefit to a lot of people. And thanks for being an inspiration to so many and joining me today on this podcast episode. And I wish you all the best. Hey, thank you so much. Really a pleasure to be here. Thank you everybody uh, for listening in and uh, uh, have a great rest of uh, your day, everybody. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best.